gain evidence over a series of like seeing your own patients. And like right. they said, yeah. there is an evidence vacuum. Like for my field, like there isn't a ton of research. So you need to be able to, that's why you go through the schooling. You need to be able to make clinical decisions based on individual patient circumstances. So, what's the, so what do you what do you think the difference is then of evidence based? Like, how would you define evidence based versus practice based? Like, how would you define that for like the layperson? Um, like evidence based yeah. would be a conclusion that you're drawing to inform your treatment of someone based on like clinical research. So, if someone went, they did a study that was controlled, and they found that there was significant value in doing something in a controlled set, like research way. Right. So you're basically eliminating all of the variables. If you're practice informed, you're treating a patient or like practice informed would be more so like after seeing a series of patients, you see trends in what works clinically, but you're not controlling for patient variables. So there's not as much, um, like unbiased information there. Like it's definitely like more bias in certain ways. And I think practice base. Yeah. And that's why you get like, would you consider that more, more rigid if you go to one, that extreme, that's more of like a rigid way of thinking. Like it doesn't make you as flexible because obviously science is also more geared towards like kind of research based. It's like you base new opinions or procedures based on the new evidence that comes up. So you have to be more flexible. I think there are definite like issues with people who, think that just because they see something clinically or they think something works and they don't think that they're injecting their own bias in that it's just like you're not going to change your practice and also like that has caused significant issues in the past with people thinking that something was happening for someone else and it actually got disproven and people continue to do it. Do you have an example? Yeah like for in like speech and language therapy there was I think it's called FC, facilitated communication, where you would have somebody who's nonverbal or who can't communicate their needs and a, a, like a typical person who's able to communicate and that person would hold, they'd have an alphabet board and they would assist facilitated at the elbow where, because the person didn't have enough finer motor, like motor control to point to different letters to spell out things. So I think it was back in like the 1980s, this was like a huge thing in the field where they were like, oh my God, these people, we've unlocked what these people know. They're starting to spell out these things, blah, blah, blah. And all of a sudden, like people were writing things like, daddy hurt me. Like things came out about all these like sexual abuse allegations. So what they did is they went back and they did like this controlled trial based on um, where they would put a board between the person who is nonverbal and the person who is facilitating and they would show them pictures and they would show them different pictures and a hundred percent like close to a hundred percent of the time what the person was spelling out on the board was actually what the clinician was seeing like the people who were facilitating were inserting their own bias it's kind of like a ouija board like where they're inserting their own bias and they're spelling out these things and it actually like was all this but like people went to jail like over like these like sexual abuse allegations and stuff that were coming out from these people who were handicapped so that's one. That's like a pretty strong example. So basically, what would be the? I mean, what's the, what's the learning takeaway from that? The learning takeaway is if you just if you just see some like 
you just think something works without looking objectively at it or because you know other people claim it works and you're not really like controlling for the variables even in your own practice then you can like especially when you're working with like a fragile population of people like people who can't communicate their own wants and needs and that i mean fc still there are still therapists that do that today so they're more of like basically practice-based they're not evidence-based by they're like the extreme opposite of evidence-based yeah they think something works because yeah. they've seen it work they've seen it work and even though now and there's works, research and it, to and it worked that, obviously and it worked by chance is what you're saying right right and of course those people didn't mean to do that it just like that's, that's so that just happened. to clarify what exactly was because i'm having a hard time like understanding it well because you, you talk so fast Megan. So, <laughs> well, you do. Passionate. You're a passionate, fast talker, and I love that about you. Um, so, Ella, get your ass out of my face. Welcome back to Brain Ninjas, everyone, where we teach you how to become your own brain health ninja or help the loved ones in your life become their best version of themselves by basically balancing their brain and... We see this a lot with kids, and I want to talk today a little bit about, um, I want to kind of read the intro to Disconnected Kids because I've always recommend this book to parents with kids with ADHD, dyslexia, autism. Um, This is a great, great foundational book. It was written by Dr. Robert Melillo, one of my favorite mentors. Um, As you may or may not know, I was diagnosed with ADD back in first grade, so, you know, kind of when I went through... um, grade school, I was given medications and I was, I remember my mom, um, bringing me to this, this place, I, I believe it was in Chicago. And I think, you know, this is back in early nineties and it was, it was basically like a nutrition place. And I know she spent a lot of money, um, to try to help me naturally. And there's just really wasn't, wasn't a whole lot of options out there. And fast forward today, there's a ton of options for kids that are struggling with, uh, sensory integration uh, issues, and I mean, you name it. Megan, what other, other kinds of things you see in the speech world? Megan is a speech language pathologist. She's had seven years plus working with the pediatric population with uh, children with autism and all kinds of stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Developmental, delays. Developmental delays. So she's kind of, she's been through the gauntlet. Articulation, Articulation all the speech stuff. Um, so anyway, let's get going with this. Um, just so you have an idea what this book is about, um, because I think this is going to be a really good, good read for you guys. It's, there's a lot of exercise and stuff in here as well. Like, so when you get the book, you can actually go through that and do a lot of the exercise and have a really good understanding and foundational understanding. So we have kids that come in from all over, uh, different States. We've even had kids from other countries, um, come in for intensive rehab. And that's where we basically do a five day intensive rehab, sometimes longer. We've had several people that are like, hey, we're going to be there in uh, San Diego for a couple weeks. Can we just do, you know, two weeks? So it all, you know, but from a foundational perspective, as you go through the book, you'll realize how much there is to learn. Um, It can kind of feel overwhelming. So we always like to uh, train the parents uh, during the, the, the week intensive that they're here and go through the things that are the most pertinent, you know, when we do the exam um, for them or their children. Uh, We want to make sure that everything's very specific so when they go home, they've got a bunch of stuff 
uh, they can do and it makes a lot more sense just to have kind of like that book because it kind of serves as kind of a manual and like a foundational understanding of what we're doing. So without further ado, let's just go through that content so you can I'll read it to you. So uh, part one talks about different symptoms, one problem, understanding the minds of disconnected kids. And just so you know, like disconnected kids, the, the title really comes from the way we kind of look at the brain um, from a functional neurological perspective. So um, essentially, we look at how well the brain stems working, not so well with children with, um, with neurodevelopmental issues because that is more brainstem uh, function at play. Uh, and then we also have to go up channel to see, hey, is it more of a left brain or right brain deficiency? So usually we find, and this is probably the most common thing we see, is um, with truly, um, truly diagnosed children with autism or ADHD fall under that right brain deficiency spectrum. So we look at that as a spectrum um, of, of issues that basically involve a lagging right brain and so the idea with all these therapies that we do is we, we basically throw a lot of different therapies in a very structured format um, for these children in order to stimulate uh, the brainstem and get it integrated and then also stimulate that right brain to bring it up to speed, right? Think if, imagine, visualize a teeter-totter, right? Essentially, the left brain is um, all the way up there, uh, it's much higher uh, functioning than the right brain, so we need to balance it out. Okay, anyway, I don't want to get sidetracked. See, my ADD is coming out. So part one, disconnected kids, different symptoms, one problem, understanding the minds of disconnected kids. Uh, and then uh, two, chapter two, children's brains really are changeable, how the developing brain is wired. Chapter three, when the brain misbehaves, a left brain, right brain disconnect. So that's what we're just going to talk about. Chapter four, what's causing it all? Let's stop confusing the issue. And chapter five, left brain, right brain. One can't grow strong without the other. So again, it kind of really, part one really breaks down kind of uh, all this stuff so you have a really good foundational understanding. And it's written really for the layperson. It's written for parents to understand this stuff um, at a level that, you know, it makes sense. All the stuff that we do is really kind of intuitive when you really get into it. It's all kind of like, hey, that kind of makes sense to do that. And you really see the benefit when you actually do this stuff. Part two uh, talks about his at-home brain balance program. So essentially, again, that's all the exercises. So chapter six, we get into reconnecting the brain, the 10 principles of the brain balance program. And the brain balance program is essentially kind of a, a version of what we do. Uh, but what happened was um, when Dr. Melillo first came out with this program, he he uh, created a what's called the Brain Balance Program and basically trained up you know, um, different types of uh, teachers, educators could actually get trained up in the actual exercises. And so um, there was a whole system to it. And you don't necessarily, you don't have to be a doctor to do these exercises and these sensory integration uh, exercises. Like, so really, you know, parents are obviously at the, at the ground level with their child and are the best person to learn these things. And ultimately it's something that you want to learn and you want to continue to do. And you might even find that these exercises are super beneficial for you because obviously, you know, we always find it's interesting. We always find parents that typically the dad's like an engineer. If it's a child with autism, it's like the, the dad's an engineer, very left brain. We call that a left brain person. And, 
Um, you know, maybe mom has some, some left brain tendencies, but in general, you'll usually see at least one parent that's a very kind of an analytical person. And maybe they were never even, you know, diagnosed or they never, you know, received the label of, you know, ADD or ADHD or autism. So essentially, you, you know, it's genetic. It's some things that are happening that's passed down, but you have control. It's, it's a matter of balancing the brain. It's a matter of getting the brain balanced, getting the gut uh, working better so that you have neurotransmitters that uh, are, are working with the brain. So you want to have a good, strong brain-to-gut connection and gut-to-brain connection. And here I am sidetracked again, but I want to make sure you guys understood that. So chapter six was reconnecting the brain, the 10 principles of the brain balance program. And then chapter seven is master hemispheric checklist. So he goes through a checklist identifying left or right brain deficiency. So you can kind of figure out, is this truly a left brain or right brain um, problem or imbalance? So and just to give you an idea, dyslexia would be more of a left brain deficiency. And Megan knows uh, this area pretty well too. Um, because that's where all speech and language and comprehension, all that stuff is located uh, primarily on the left side of the brain. Right, Megan? Mm -hmm. uh, and if you were to look at a functional MRI, you would basically be able to see when there's certain tasks that the, the person is, are, uh, is doing, certain areas of the brain, the brain light up. So, of course, like when you're speaking, you're going to see all these areas on the left brain light up. And it's not to say like left brain, right brain, that's too simple. We know, we know that it, that's too simple of a model to just say, oh, it's all, this is all left brain, this is all right brain. But for understanding certain types of dominance, that's kind of what you're looking at. It's like, it's easier to understand. And we do know that certain areas will light up a whole lot more on the left brain or the right brain. So there are certain regions and areas and um, hemispheres that are more involved with certain tasks than others. Um, but at the end of the day, the whole brain is a bunch of networks and it's complex and, you know, we don't know it all. We just know that what we see clinically uh, when we um, treat kids and even adults with these different methods that it just, it works, right? You take from the research and you apply these different things um, and research is getting better and better by the day. We get more and more things that we can look at and apply clinically you know, you take, you take from the research and you apply it clinically and you learn what works and what's not working. And uh, you just, yeah, let's move on. Chapter eight, what to expect from brain balance, how to interpret the results you will experience. Chapter nine, hemispheric home sensory motor assessment, how to detect a left or right brain deficiency. Chapter 10, sensory motor exercises, training the brain through physical stimulation. This is actually a really important point. So with, when in the program, a lot of times parents are used to, um, you know, the cognitive behavioral approaches. Is that what you're used to too, Megan? You kind of, you've seen a lot of um, basically the top-down approach, we call it. So there's kind of a, there's a top-down approach, which is traditional therapy is usually this, hey, let's, let's um, deal with the, the higher level parts of the brain and try to deal with this more cognitively. The problem with, uh, with that, with, with kids is again, if the, the brain, this is an important point, the brain develops from a bottom up type of process as we, as we age. And there are certain aspects 
that are just, you have to focus on the foundation of the brain, which is like really the brainstem level. And the brainstem level has to do with things like balance. It has to do with uh, sensory integration, your eyes, your balance, your body movements. All, everything really has to pass through that brainstem level to get to the higher levels. And it's really just this, this, this uh, aspect of, from an evolutionary perspective, everything kind of develops. It's developed over time and it's, our brain's gotten more and more complex and it's basically just stacked layers and layers of complexity. So you have to go back to you know, the, the part of the brain that um, is kind of the foundation. So what we find with kids especially is certain aspects of that foundation isn't working so well. So um, things like physical exercise can be very helpful. Uh, we always um, typically find with um, children with, uh, that are diagnosed with autism, they usually have lower tone in their muscles, they usually need to have uh, more large muscle groups firing. So they need to do big. They need to do big muscle group exercises to really connect that right brain. We know the right brain is a little bit more involved with that. Uh, being connected to your body, these kids don't feel connected. They don't feel grounded, and that's where a lot of these behavioral problems that we see come up. Is you know you just you're not you don't feel connected to your body, and then you have um, also the immune regulation. Uh, immune system for these like the gut issues that we see is really more of this right brain deficiency which is why you start to see those things because again you need brain balance in order for your entire body to function correctly so again if those if those primitive areas of the brain are not working well you need to get those working better and integrated so kids can feel like, okay, I feel like I'm actually inside my body now. I feel like I have control. I feel like I have awareness. Then they feel more content. They're not going to be so fidgety and moving around and squirming. Uh, and, and just, you know, that's where, again, these behavior things kind of pop out. It's because the foundational stuff is just not there. Um, chapter 10 was, okay, that was training the brain through physical stimulation. Chapter 11 is neuroacademic assessment and home activities aiming for a better grade and we also always see uh academics improve um that's always the, would you say that's probably the major major thing that parents are concerned with um it's like behavior academics uh and then eating and feeding those are seem to be the top uh friendships are a big one. friendships so yeah i mean and relationships is so is such a right brain thing right mm-hmm. that's what i said like engineers and you know, people that are really good at math and those really left brain dominant people, as you know, they would prefer to be at a computer than, you know, going out to coffee with someone and having a conversation. It's just, it's not, a, they, the social, the social brain is that higher level, but predominantly that right side of that, of the brain. And a lot of kids with autism struggle with that. A lot of kids with autism struggle with that, absolutely. I don't know if you guys can hear Megan, but she's kind of... She's like 10 feet away, so you might not hear um, What should I feed my child? We just kind of hit on that. So chapter 12 is what should I feed my child? That's a huge question. And it's actually a really, that's kind of a frustrating point. Right, Megan? Where kids, kids eat, you know, seven, only seven different things, right? 
six or seven different types of food. They won't eat anything else. They love their carbohydrates. They won't, they love their sugars or addicted to these things. So it's like that becomes a difficult, uh, uh, thing, a challenging thing. And so again, when you start getting the brain to work better, kids, uh, oddly enough, they start to actually get more comfortable with different types of foods and things because Megan knows this area pretty well too. So what is it with their, why, why do, why is it that, that kids have a hard time with different foods? What is the main? Um, well, a lot of times it can uh, have to do with sensory issues that they're experiencing with different types of tastes or textures. Um, a lot of children with autism will gravitate towards like those carbohydrate type foods, like, uh, chips, um, Doritos, things that are crunchy, and we call those like the easy to eat foods. They're just easier textures to handle. Um, and so, yeah. And there's just, in, in, in you, there's a, like a, there's more of a step by step process or a more, a, a good approach that you like to use too, where let's introduce this texture or this type of food. Like, there's a good sequence that kind of helps that process as well that you can kind of, um, you can kind of tailor that uh, that that process towards whatever the kids to eating, someone right? who's a picky eater, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And so it's a good way to kind of objectively measure too. Hey, they're doing better with this food, and so we always we always hear that from parents too, right? Like, um, you know, after even a week, we might notice like, hey, he's he or she's starting to you know explore this type of food, and they don't seem to be minding this type of food and I can actually introduce this type of food and that's really important because you know from the standpoint of of gut diversity like your microbiome your uh the good bacteria that comes from a diverse uh diverse types of produce and different fibers and so you really want to build that 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 gut diversity and that has everything to do with immune system regulation and decreasing overall inflammation and so on and so forth. And then uh, the last chapter we get into is home behavior modification plan, getting back to normal. Uh, this book is, is like 283 pages. Uh, well, actually over 300 if you include all the index and everything. So, But I, there's good pictures in here, kind of shows different exercises and everything is like really in here. But um, again, I really encourage you guys to get this book because this, this will be helpful. And I'm hoping I've, Talk to Doctor Malillo. I'm like, hey man, we're gonna update this book because <laughs> it's you know it's been ten years, but it's like it's a lot. All of it's so so valid still though, and uh, you know it, through the um, we we continually do uh, education on this stuff, and we're always looking at research and kind of getting you know updated on the best methods. And um, so at the end of the day, you know there's there's a lot of different types of uh, therapies and things out there, but. The one thing I feel that is not happening with, with time and time again when we've seen, you know, well over 100 children and parents in, on this topic, there's, it's always like, hey, we did this, we did that, we did this. And it's like no one checked things like the, like, like the primitive reflexes. The primitive reflexes you'll learn about in here, which is super important in the process, really looks at how well the brainstem is working, how well it's integrated. So, and we always, that's like usually the most foundational thing we have to teach you is because there's actual physical exercises. There are different things you can do to help the brainstem work better. 
And But you first have to know, well, what primitive reflexes are actually still there? And I guess I should probably touch on that because that's kind of a big point. So primitive reflexes, guys, are those things that uh, we look for in children and adults. But they're the reflexes that you're born with. We have these pre-programmed reflexes as as uh, babies. So the first several months of life, we have these reflexes uh, that are just built in. It's like this, you know, again, it's a reflex. So you don't really have to think about it. It just happens. So when we check these different things, one of them, for instance, is I could stroke the spine on one side or the other uh, of, of a baby. And you'll see this, if again, if it hasn't integrated, you're going to see this little contraction of the of the spine towards the side on the side that I've actually the side that I stroke just the light stroke down the skin on the side of the spine you check both sides and you can actually see a contraction and there's different variations of this too we look for subtleties as well but here's the interesting thing you'll see this stuff a lot that reflex is actually it's kind of like the way a fish would move it's called like undulation you move back and forth laterally and that's basically to help a baby get out of the birth canal. And then there's other reflexes you guys are probably more familiar with, like uh, the grasp reflex. So if you put your finger in uh, your baby's hand, what do they do? They grasp onto it, right? Again, these are reflexes that are primitive or very, very old because it's the older parts of the brain before we were these, you know, before we became these super complex, you know, overanalyzing human homo sapiens, right? So this is so what happens is you have these different reflexes that can pop up. Another one's the Babinski. So if you rub the bottom of the foot, you'll see the coat, the toes. If the reflex is there and it's not integrated, you'll see those the toes. You can see this on a baby really easy. Uh, the toes will splay and kind of extend. The big toe you'll definitely see extend upward, right? Again, you shouldn't see these on kids, and so a lot of the kids that are coming in, you know, anywhere from toddler age to um you know teens is the typical age range that we'll see and we'll see these reflexes time and time again and so you have to get those reflexes integrated and so of course in in the clinic we've we've kind of found uh various ways to get those integrated really quick but at the end of the day if you just do the exercises um and stay very consistent with the exercise once you learn what reflexes are there the reflexes you can notice, they can go away, but what happens is they'll kind of come back. So the brain is plastic. You have to kind of keep stimulating those pathways to make it, to make it uh, uh, kind of bury the reflex, to basically inhibit the reflex. That's really, really important. And it's actually the frontal lobe of your brain that really kind of inhibits that. So again, as your brain develops, you know, when you're an infant, your frontal lobe and the higher levels of the brain haven't really developed yet. They haven't started to connect. Those neurons are still connecting, right? You're actually born with like a ton of neurons uh, and then you start to actually lose those as you age. But what happens is you get more and more highly connected highways of these neurons communicating. So the brain is actually connecting and growing that way. Um, and that's what inhibits those reflexes. Super important, guys. So learn about this stuff. Let us know if you have questions. Megan, did you want to add anything? No. No. Okay. Um, guys, we're going to probably keep talking about this kind of stuff because this is our passion. This is what we do outside of, uh, you know, dealing with, um, you know, the pain stuff and concussions and dizziness and vertigo and, you know, POTS, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. So things like 
the vertigo and the dizziness and all that stuff. Um, we do we do a lot with the with the kids. We do a lot with adults. If you guys have questions about any of this stuff, brain, body rehab, uh, we probably can help you. Right, Megan? Mm-hmm. And Megan sees the little kiddos for the speech and language stuff. And, uh, you know, it's a happy little family. And, and our clinic actually is Cali Spine. And we're located over here in uh, Encinitas, which is like 30 minutes north of San Diego. A nice little beach town. Great weather. We're spoiled that way. I'm from Michigan originally, so, you know, I'll never go back to that weather. Unfortunately, I'm, I've been spoiled long enough. But uh, again, guys, if you have any questions about this stuff, let us know. We'll talk to you guys soon. Peace.